turn in the Old Testament to Genesis 26. Genesis 26, we'll read verses 1 through 5. Old Testament reading is Genesis 26, verses 1 through 5. Lend your attention, this is the word of God. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt, dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you. And will bless you, and to you, and to your offspring, I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice, and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. And you can turn the New Testament to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. Our final week on the Beatitudes. Read the whole opening of the Sermon on the Mount, verses... 1 through 12, Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. This is God's word. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall seek God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. Join me in prayer. God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory on display in the heavens, bearing plain testimony to who you are, by infinite wisdom and power and goodness. And in your word, you have spoken plainly. Spoken with reference to the sad state of this world spoken plainly in the redemption that you have accomplished in the Lord Jesus Christ, our King, who even now continues to instruct us, to teach us, to encourage us, to build us up. And so we ask that you would be pleased uh, to do what only you can do by the 
wonderful working of the Holy Spirit. Your people are gathered. They are before you. You know their hearts. They are open before you. Only you can speak to them. Words go forth even now, but to have them pressed to the heart. This is the Spirit's work, and so we ask that you would be pleased to do it. For we ask in Christ's name, amen. If you're doing a word count of the Beatitudes, as we've observed before, uh, you would walk away encouraged, um, because the most dominant word is blessed. After that uh, comes the reality of joy. Twice he says it, rejoice and be glad. And uh, this ought to lift our hearts, uh, for he's instructing us in the Christian faith. And to have the Christian faith presented to us as a reality of blessedness and joy and gladness is encouraging indeed. But the second most frequent word and word group is persecution. Twice, he emphasizes that here. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are you when you are persecuted. And then he elaborates on this. When people revile you, when people speak all manner of evil against you. Luke's account expands it further. Blessed are you when others hate you, when they exclude you, when they malign you. And it shouldn't come as a surprise if we read about the church age in Scripture why the Lord emphasizes this reality of hostility. It starts almost from the very beginning, doesn't it? Stephen is killed in Acts 7. Things had just gotten started. Herod kills James, the brother of John, in Acts 12. Things hadn't even gone to the Gentiles yet. They had. Both the book of Hebrews and 1 Peter write to churches that are experiencing some form of hostility and harassment simply because they're Christian. The last book of the Bible finds John, the beloved apostle, in exile. The reality of persecution has attended the life of the church from the very beginning. It goes on from there, post-scripture. You can read the letters of Ignatius and Polycarp as they made their way to the martyr state. One of the early church fathers, Justin Martyr, as well, met the same end. There's a lesser-known story of a young woman named Perpetua, shortly after Justin Martyr. For being a Christian, she was handed over to the wild animals, and on and on, the first two centuries. Tertullian, that second, third century church father, would lament something to the effect of, nothing bad can happen in the world without the world calling for the Christians to be fed to the lions. The church was no stranger to the reality of persecution. There's a strange tension in the Christian faith. As soon as you become a child of the true and living God, you are uniquely exposed to the malice of the world and the God of this world. That's a strange tension, isn't it? And you sympathize with anyone who thinks it's strange. You recall Peter writing to his church in 1 
Peter chapter 4. Do not think it strange when these fiery trials come upon you, implying what? Well, we're tempted to think it strange. And you sympathize with anyone who might think it strange. Christian suffering is odd. But persecution is particularly odd. Think about it. If one belongs to King Arthur, one bears Arthur's crest, one walks about in a place where all authority belongs to King Arthur, you expect that the one bearing the name of Arthur would be treated with the honor and the dignity that Arthur deserves. It stands to reason. The observation is only half right. We should expect to be treated the same way our king was treated. The difficulty comes in grappling with the grace and the dignity and the mercy and the patience with which our king bore his gross mistreatment in this world. That's the relation that Christ invites us to consider ourselves in as we wrestle with this dark reality of hostility incurred for bearing the name of Christ. He says if they treated the master of the house this way, what reason do you have to expect the servants to be treated any differently? A servant is not above his master. The world does not know you because it did not know me. If you want to know how we ought to expect the world to treat the church, Jesus says, look at how the world treated me. And with that, we can say it's actually more surprising when the church isn't persecuted. That's the exception, not the norm. Paul tells us plainly, 2 Timothy 3.12. This is the end of the apostle's life. He's, glim he's glimpsing the non-apostolic age. All those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Even here, the double emphasis on persecution, the way the Lord says it, blessed are you when, not if, a strong suggestion that this isn't just a possibility, this isn't, this isn't an eventuality. This is a certainty. In some form, this will be true of you, but take heart. Because while the world lavishes curses upon you, you're blessed by me. And there's encouragement to be had, even in this experience. So we close this time with the Beatitudes, considering both the difficulty and the blessing persecution. So let's ask first, what is persecution? Second, why persecution? And then third, what is the blessing of persecution? One, what is persecution? Verse 10 opens, blessed are those who are persecuted. So what is it? Well, in general, persecution is hostility or harassment aimed at someone because of their beliefs and practices. There's all sorts of absurd forms of cruelty in this world, but persecution is a particular form of it, and it is because of someone's beliefs and practices. 
But Christ says more in that blessed persecution is hostility or harassment experienced because one is following Christ. So what sort of persecution do we see in Scripture? A. I'm reading from J.C. Ryle. He's very organized. One, what is persecution? A. Persecution can come from lawful authorities. When Jesus was born, Herod tried to kill him. The king. Another Herod arrested John and then beheaded him. Hostility towards Christ, towards God and his people can originate from or come from those who occupy a position of lawful authority. You read church history, especially early church history, this is frequently the case. Legitimate authorities working to destroy the church. The time of Nero, incidentally, when Paul wrote Romans 13. The time of Domitian, Septimus Severus at the end of the second century. More recently, during the time of the Reformation, Queen Mary vigorously working to undo the Reformation, under whom some 400 or so Protestants were killed. To this day, there are regimes hostile to Christianity, places like North Korea, Pakistan, Iran, Nigeria, China, confirmed by disinterested observers <laughs> that this is indeed the case. This happens to this day. Happened from the beginning to now, confirming our Lord's words, a servant is not above his master. It's an excellent reminder to us in two ways. First, we ought to be praying for the church the world over, and particularly our brothers and sisters experiencing this sort of difficulty. I need to do a better job in leading us in that because it should fill a portion of our public worship when we pray. We are united to them. They are our brothers and sisters in the Christ. All the exhortations, all the encouragements to visit people in prison are that reality. It's solidarity with those who are being despised simply because they're Christian. Fostering solidarity with those who profess the name in Christ where the stakes are much higher than they were for you this morning. Second, we should be grateful, shouldn't we? Our hearts should brim with gratitude for the freedom we have to gather and worship without fear. Is anyone afraid right now that you're going to be hauled away? No, you're probably more indignant at the thought that you might be hauled. We're not going to be hauled away. That's a gift of the Lord. Our whole lives have been characterized by that gift that we can gather openly and declare Jesus Christ is Lord, a profession that would have cost Christians much more than inconvenience. We've grown a little flabby, haven't we? That's fair to say. Maybe it's the absence of persecution 
is the exception, not the norm, then some other hostile spiritual reality is active when there's no persecution, like indifference or worldliness, materialism, laziness. Seems that there's two ways to go awry. I've done this sort of a offhanded level in the book of Revelation. You meet two threats to the church. One of them is the beast who devours. The other one is the prostitute who seduces. B, persecution can involve lawful authorities. Matthew 10, 17, Jesus warns the disciples, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts. The apostles are constantly being hauled in front of the authorities. Other people hate them, but they're accused to the authorities who may or may not hate them. Oftentimes those who hate them make false charges against them to entrap them. This is ultimately how the Lord Jesus Christ was put to death. Pilate became a pawn, manipulated and ultimately scared into doing what others wanted him to do to destroy Christ. It's a good reminder to us because it shows that persecution is not always straightforward. Jesus was charged with threatening to tear down the temple. But really, they just hated him and were looking for any reason to kill him. The apostles were charged with fomenting insurrection. But really, they hated Christians and were looking for any reason to kill them. Persecution oftentimes disguises itself as something else. And this should come as no surprise because the ultimate instigator of persecution for the children of God is the God of this world was a liar and a deceiver and one who cloaks all of his ways in darkness. The church is called to have a mind of wisdom when it comes to this. C. Persecution can be personal, involving personal cruelty. The Lord said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. It seems to me that this is the most inevitable version of persecution. You might not be hauled in front of the civil magistrates. You might not be accused falsely in front of a judge. But if you are following the Lord Jesus Christ in earnest, looking unto him for your manner of life and your practice, you're going to offend someone, somewhere. You're going to stir up hostility. That seems to me to be the inevitability of walking as a Christian. The Lord says here that it takes the form of reviling. What does revile mean? To revile. It means to curse. It means to mock. It means to make fun of, to despise and shame publicly. And he goes further, he says, speaking all manner of evil against you. The early church was accused of incest and cannibalism. Striking. They gathered in respect and love and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ and their neighbors slandered them, accusing them of unspeakable evils taking place. Seems to me that these can be some of the hardest persecutions to bear because they're usually sitting behind a veil of ambiguity. 
But in the end, what do they result in? They result in isolation, loneliness, separation from those groups that otherwise ought to bring encouragement, family, neighbors. All of it feeling so wrong. I've just misunderstood. No, you don't understand. This is wonderful. <laughs> Come. Understanding this to be a form of persecution is helpful because it reminds us that it's in the same category as the fire, as imprisonment. It's the same heart of cruelty towards the Lord Jesus Christ being exercised. Maybe it's not as dreadful to consider being openly mocked at work. But it's still incredibly difficult, isn't it? What all these forms of hostility and harassment have in common is, in the final analysis, the hostility is because the person is following Christ. And that's what makes blessed persecution. So two, we can consider the cause of persecution. A, Persecution is not hostility or mistreatment due to our wrongdoing. That's what the Lord says here, specifically. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. Implying, if it's true, it's not persecution. <laughs> it might be other things, but persecution it is not. If someone calls you a scoundrel, and you're a scoundrel, that's not slander. <laughs> that's true. It's hard. But it's not persecution. It's just truth-telling. Peter says the same thing. What credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Answer? No credit. You get no credit for that. If you get fired because you're lazy and unreliable... And you also to happen to be a Christian, don't deceive yourself. Paul would agree with your employer. Fire them. How do I know that? Because in 1 Thessalonians, he basically forbids the church from helping lazy Christians. Go read 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians is a tough letter. Go read it. <laughs> he says, instead, church, rebuke that person. Tell them to get to work. Which I'm reading as confirming that Paul would agree with your employer. Yeah, fire them. We're not going to help them either. <laughs> We're going to help them in a different way. If your neighbors dislike you because you're an old grouch or a busybody, and you also happen to be a Christian, there's no blessing there. If you get hauled before a court because you stole or committed tax fraud or an act of violence, the call is to repent and submit to God's ministers in the civil arena. As they administer punishment to you. The call is not rejoice. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed persecution is not suffering the consequences of wrong we have done. When we do wrong there's still blessing to be found there. But it involves humbling ourselves. Acknowledging our wrong. Making restitution. And finding forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. Additionally. Be Persecution is not because we needlessly provoke authorities or other people. This one is subtler, but it's important. The early church actually had to rebuke some so-called martyrs 
for provoking authorities so that they would be killed. You can go read about it. They just say, no, 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 that's not martyrdom. That's suicide, and it's sinful. Stop doing it. Recall our Lord's example in this matter. When John was arrested, he withdrew. Now, partly this was because the time had not yet come for him to be arrested. But partly we see divine wisdom in this. He's not looking for a fight. What does Paul say? Again, 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12. Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. Telling the church to do, he's telling you to do, aspire to live quietly and mind your own business. Elsewhere, he says, what business do I have judging those who are outside the church? He says that. That's in the Bible. He says, my business is with you. You're the ones held to a higher standard. You're the ones who have been bought with the blood of Christ. You're the ones in whom the Spirit dwells. Not them. You. We got to hear that. Paul says the church is not to go looking for a fight. Jesus has already pronounced blessing upon the peacemakers. It's his heart that desires not strife and contention, but peace, which reflects God. As he's the one who made peace by the blood of his son's cross. We've got to grapple with this, don't we? We've got to grapple with this. Because truth be told, we're too often looking for a fight. And that's shameful. That's the flesh. That perverse delight that the flesh has in provoking others, poking others. And then the perversity is worsened. When we convince ourselves that it's a righteous provocation, double perversity. And make no mistake, when the time comes to stand, the church must, must stand. Yet even in standing, it's not let the flesh loose. <laughs> it's a standing in humility and love and truth, just as Christ's stand was. Those occasions are not occasions to let the flesh loose, but to plead for the Spirit. For it is only the Spirit of Christ which enables another worldly love to shine forth when the world is arrayed in madness against the church. And certainly we are acting beyond foolish if we go out looking for a fight. So then persecution is not hostility incurred because of wrongs that we do, nor is it hostility incurred because we intentionally provoke. So what is it? C. Persecution is hostility that comes in the pursuit of righteousness. He says twice, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted, persecuted for the sake of righteousness. And then he clarifies, blessed are you when you are reviled for my sake. If you read the letter of first peter peter defines it even more specifically if you pursue doing good who is there to harm you pursuing righteousness following christ doing good 
How lovely, how unobjectionable, and yet here, here is opposition, hostility, and of a blessed variety. He says, if you belong to me, you're following me in faith, and others arrange themselves against you, take heart, for this is blessing unto you. So what does this look like? In Matthew 10, Jesus sends out the disciples to carry the good news throughout Israel. And he tells them, I'm sending you a sheep amidst wolves. He says, I'm sending you out with the, the word of life, with the gospel of life, with the promise of life, with eternal life in a world that is in love with death. It's a gospel of light to a world that is in love with darkness and actually hates the light because by the light they're shown to be sinners. But if they can push through that, then they find Christ, friend of sinners. But nobody wants to push through that, that first flicker of discomfort in the light of I'm a sinner and I hate you. That's where most people stop. So Matthew 10 is particularly geared towards elders, ministers. He's saying, don't be surprised when you carry out my word that you suffer for it in this world. That's what it was from the very beginning. That's what it is down to this present day. Sometimes it's enough just when people know you're a Christian. Just bearing the name Christian is enough to stir up suspicion, sarcasm, and caustic remarks towards you for one reason or another. This was certainly the case in the letters of Pliny the Younger. We get this glimpse into what it was like to be a Christian under Emperor Trajan. It was just, just enough to be known as a Christian. And you could be hauled in front of the authorities to, to give an account. You didn't have to do anything. You just be associated with Christians. Sometimes it's hostility because we give our time and energy to public worship. And serving the church, that offends people. I mean, think about it. It makes sense. We arrange our lives differently. We don't arrange our lives around the Vikings game. We arrange our lives around coming before the resurrected and ascended Lord. Saying, no, 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 we, we worship the true and living God. And we give in this day, acknowledging that we are utterly dependent upon that. Other people see that and they don't like even the reminder that that's true. And so they rise up. They have a great distaste for it. We devote ourselves to worship. We devote ourselves to caring for one another. We make time for it in our homes, in our personal lives. As one early Christian put it, we cannot live without celebrating the Lord's Day. We cannot live without celebrating the Lord's Day. Can we say that? Do we say that? Our lives reflect the priority of worshiping God because we have seen His excellencies. We have tasted His goodness in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the forgiveness and the eternal life which has come unto us, the assurance of his love, the confirmation of the blessedness of his purposes towards us, all of it fueling our worship 
patterning our lives. And it's quite often the case that this offends others. This gets eyeballs. Sometimes it's the character of the Christian life that offends others. That's the most obvious meaning of our Lord's words. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Following Christ, being found in Christ, looking a little bit more and more like Christ as we walk by faith and not by sight. There's a prophetic element to that. Notice that he's linking the church's life in righteousness to what happened in the time of the prophets. He didn't like the prophets. They didn't like the prophets one little bit. Jeremiah got called to the prophet. He's like, I don't want to be a prophet. Please don't make me a prophet because they're going to kill me. And he says, yes, they are. But I'm with you, Jeremiah. <laughs> people didn't like the prophets because the prophets forced the people to confront the fact that they are not their own. That they are obligated to the true and living God. That they belong to another and they're accountable to another. Jesus is saying that the Christian life itself bears that witness and people don't like it. It doesn't matter how gently you comport yourself. It doesn't matter how humbly you comport yourself. At the end of the day, if they glimpse true godliness in you, they're going to see something of their unfulfilled obligation to the true and living God. They're going to harden their heart against it. Jesus says they're in a dangerous position when they do this, but you're blessed. You can be encouraged because something not of earth is taking place in you. Something not of you is taking place in you. And you can be encouraged by this, even though it's hard, outward facing. Sometimes speaking the truth in love offends. Just speaking the truth. Romans 1 ends in a really strange way. He, he lists all these sins, slander, envy, sexual immorality, cruelty, theft, all these things. But then he ends saying, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That's fascinating. Because it means it's not just enough to sin. It means you've got to have approval for sin. There's something about the heart engaged with sin that cannot rest until everyone approves of that sin. It's like the voice of your conscience is so loud that you need to get a chorus of those saying the opposite thing to drown it out. That's how I understand it. And that seems to me to speak a remarkably pertinent word for this current situation. At some point, I don't care how intensely you're trying to keep your head down, and I encourage you, keep your head down. <laughs> live, quite, aspire to live quietly. Aspire to mind your own business. I don't care how intensely you're trying to do it, you're going to come to a crossroads where someone says, hey, what do you think about this? And you're gonna be like, come on! <laughs> I think what God's word thinks about I love you, I'm a sinner as well, but this is what's true, and I know you're not going to like it. I don't care how intensely you're trying to figure it out, that moment is coming. 
Now, I will say that I think a word of warning is in order at this point, because we have the unholy urge to pronounce upon everything that passes our glance. Things that we have nothing to do with. <laughs> they have no bearing on us. We're just marching around like, we'll tell you what's right and wrong. <laughs> See, they got, it's got nothing to do with me. It's got nothing to do with you. Don't go looking for those situations. Proverbs is full of advice about not grabbing angry dogs by their ears. Translated, mind your own business. There's a word of wisdom there. A good rule of thumb. Were you asked? A second rule of thumb. Do you have any relationship with this person? <laughs> now there's exceptions to both those things, but they both seem to be sober rules for speaking the truth. But both the answers to those questions is yes. And the day comes and you pray yourself up asking for courage and love. Courage to speak God's truth. And the love to do it in a heart that earnestly wants the person's good and not their destruction. The list is by no means exhaustive, but I trust you've seen something of the reality of the church in this. No? Yes? Fair. So we come third to the blessing of persecution. Three. A. Yours is the kingdom. What is persecution if not the loss of this world? The reminder that you have no share here. That's what persecution is. It is an official pronouncement from the world that says you're not among us. You're not counted with us. You have no inheritance among us, to which Christ says, Blessed. Because this world and its glory and its passions is fading away. But there is a kingdom that has no end. So when the world stands up and says, You have no inheritance here, we say, know where I do have an inheritance. And it's the kingdom that has no end. B, you're in good company. The first blessing is that yours is the kingdom of heaven. The second is that you're in good company. Fahrenheit 451, it's a novel. The main character finds himself in the end to be a vagrant and a wanderer in exile, and he comes upon a fire and a small band of weary-looking wanderers and they share with him their bread. And it turns out around this fire, among these weary travelers, sit doctors and lawyers, artists and intellects. And this character who's now on the run from the authorities finds that this is noble company indeed, those who have been cast out from the halls of the world. The solace for the persecuted is not that they find themselves surrounded by the great ones of earth, but that they are surrounded by the great ones in the esteem of heaven. That's what he says, blessed are you for so they treated the prophets who were before you. Hebrews 11 is essentially a catalog of this very point. Those of whom the world was not worthy. You find the rank among them. An honor, a dignity, a nobility that surpasses the wildest imagination of the Pharaoh's 
of old. Rejoice and be glad, for you are in excellent company. But Hebrews 11 doesn't end with a meditation upon the excellencies of Abel and Jacob and Moses. It ends by pointing our eyes to the Lord Jesus Christ. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's not just the company of the saints of old confirmed to us in the reality of persecution. It's the company of the Lord Jesus Christ. So come back to that first blessed observation where Jesus says, they treated me this way. Rejoice because it means that you have share in me if they treat you this way. You have fellowship with me. And that is worth more than all the accolades all the worlds combined. He says the world can curse. The world can generate temporary discomfort. But my Father in heaven, and indeed I myself with all authority in heaven, can reward everlastingly. And that's how he closes. Which is see the final blessing, a great and abiding reward. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. The experience of this church in this world will never reflect accurately the riches bestowed upon us in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not for the naked eye to discern the riches that have passed unto us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who would look at Stephen as the stones rained upon him? And know that he was rich beyond all telling. Who would look at Paul sitting chained between two Roman centurions and think this one knows blessedness and contentment, the likes of which would stagger the imagination of the philosophers? Who would look at John on Patmos, expelled from friends and family, and think this is the one to whom heaven has smiled? Nobody if they're looking at it with the eye of sense. All the eye of sense sees is stones raining, chains dragging, island isolating. But what the eye of faith sees is what? Stephen beholding Jesus. Paul saying, there is joy and strength untold in belonging to Jesus Christ. John saying, the heavens are opened to me, church. Everything's going to be fine. Hang in there. Earth can strip of earthly things. They cannot touch heavenly treasures. Fear not the one who can harm the body. Stand in awe before your heavenly Father who has bestowed upon you a blessedness that staggers the imagination. For you know... The one in whom your confidence lies, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that confidence, there is great reward. Let us set our mind on these things. For in Christ, our life is hid until he returns. Let's pray. Sanctify us by your word, O Lord. Your word is truth. 
Feed us, O Lord, as we come hungry. Make us hungry, O Lord, and then satisfy us and sustain us as only you can. Give us grateful hearts as we reflect upon your blessing extended to us. Give us courage in the day of trouble and love to look towards even those who might revile. With pity and compassion as you looked upon us when we were your enemies, sending forth your Son. For we ask in Christ's name.